Homage to Catalonia, Chapter 4 When I had been about three weeks in the line, a contingent of twenty or thirty men sent out from England by the ILP arrived at Alcubierre, and in order to keep the English on this front together, Williams and I were sent to join them. Our new position was at Monte Oscuro, several miles further west and within sight of Zaragoza. The position was perched on a sort of razorback of limestone, with dugouts driven horizontally into the cliff like San Martin's nests. They went into the ground for prodigious distances, and inside they were pitch dark and so low that you could not even kneel in them, let alone stand. On the peaks to the left of us, there were two more POUM positions, one of them an object of fascination to every man in the line, because there were three militia women who did there who did the cooking. These women were not exactly beautiful, but it was found necessary to put the position out of bounds to men of other companies. Five hundred yards to our right, there was a PSUC post at the bend of the Alcubierre Road. It was just here... It was just here that the road changed hands. At night, you could watch the lamps of our supply lorries winding out from Alcubierre, and simultaneously those of the fascists coming from Zaragoza. You could see Zaragoza itself, a thin string of lights like the lighted portholes of a ship, twelve miles southwestward. The government's troops had gazed at it from that distance since August 1936, and they are gazing at it still. There were about thirty of ourselves, including one Spaniard, Ramon, William's brother-in-law, and there were a dozen Spanish machine gunners. Apart from the one or two inevitable nuisances, for, as everyone knows, war attracts riffraff, the English were an exceptionally good crowd, both physically and mentally. Perhaps the best of the bunch was Bob Smiley the grandson of the famous miners' leader, who afterwards died such an evil and meanless death in Valencia. It says a lot for the Spanish character that the English and the Spaniards always got on well together, in spite of the language difficulty. All Spaniards, we discovered, knew two English expressions. One was, Okay, baby. The other was a word used by the Barcelona whores in their dealings with English sailors, and I'm afraid the con- compositors would not print it. Once again, there was nothing happening all along the line, only the random crack of bullets and, very rarely, the crash of a fascist mortar that sent everyone running to the top trench to see which hill the shells were bursting on. The enemy was somewhat closer to us here, perhaps three or four hundred yards away. Their nearest position was exactly opposite ours, with a machine gun nest whose loopholes constantly tempted one to waste cartridges. The fascists seldom bothered with rifle shots, but sent bursts of accurate machine gun fire at anyone who exposed himself. Nevertheless, it was ten days or more before we had our first casualty. The troops opposite us were Spaniards, but according to the deserters, there were a few German NCOS among them. At some time in the past, there had also been Moors there. Poor devils, how they must have felt cold, for... Out in the no-man's land, there was a dead moor who was one of the sites of the locality. A mile or two to the left of the line, less to the left of us, the line ceased to be continuous, and there was a tract of 
country, lower-lying and thickly wooded, which belonged neither to the fascists nor ourselves. Both we and they used, used to make daily patrols there. It was not bad fun in a boy Scottish way, though I never saw a fascist patrol nearer than several hundred yards away. By a lot of crawling on your belly, you could work your way partly through the fascist lines and could even see the farmhouse flying the monarchist flag, which was the local fascist headquarters. Occasionally, we gave it a rifle volley and then slipped into cover before the machine guns could locate us. I hope we broke a few windows, but it was a good 800 meters away, and with our rifles, you could not make sure of hitting even a house at that range. The weather was mostly clear and cold, sometimes sunny at midday, but always cold. Here and there, in the soil of the hillsides, you found green beaks of wild crocuses, or irises, poking through. Evidently, spring was coming, but coming very slowly. The nights were colder than ever. Coming off guard in the small hours, we used to rake together what was left of the cookhouse fire, and then stand in the red-hot embers. It was bad for your boots, but it was very good for your feet. But there were mornings when the sight of the dawn among the mountaintops made it almost worthwhile to be out of bed at godless hours. I hate mountaintops, even from a spectacular point of view. But, e but sometimes the dawn breaking behind the hilltops in our rear, the first narrow streaks of gold like a sword slitting the darkness, and then the growing light and the seas of carmine clouds stretching away into inconceivable distances were worth watching, even when you had been up all night, when your legs were numb from the knees down, and you were sullenly reflecting that there was no hope of food for another three hours. I saw the dawn oftener during this campaign than during the rest of my life put together, or during the part that is to come, I hope. We were sure-handed here, which meant longer guards and more fatigue. I was beginning to suffer a little, black, a little from the lack of sleep, which is inevitable even in the quietest kind of war. Apart from guard duties and patrols, there were constant night alarms and stand-tos, and in any case, you can't sleep properly in a beastly hole in the ground with your feet aching with the cold. In my first three or four months in the line, I do not suppose I had more than a dozen periods of 24 hours that were completely without sleep. On the other hand, I certainly did not have a dozen nights of full sleep. Twenty or thirty hours sleep in a week was quite a normal amount. The effects of this were not so bad as might be expected. One grew very stupid, and the job of climbing up and down the hills grew harder instead of easier. But one felt well, and one was constantly hungry. Heavens, how hungry! All food seemed good, even the eternal haricot beans, which everyone in Spain finally learned to hate the sight of. Our water, what there was of it, came from miles away, on the backs of mules or little persecuted donkeys. For some reason, the Aragon peasants treated their mules well, but their donkeys ab abominably. If a donkey refused to go, it was quite usual to kick him in the testicles. The issue of candles had ceased, and matches were running short. The Spaniards taught us how to make olive oil lamps out of a condensed milk tin, a cartridge clip, and a bit of rag. When you had any olive oil, which was not often, these things would burn with a smoky flicker, about a quarter candle power, just enough to find your rifle by. There seemed no hope of any real fighting. When we left Monte Pocero, 
I had counted my cartridges and found that in nearly three weeks I had fired just three shots at the enemy. They say it takes a thousand bullets to kill a man, and at this rate it would be twenty years before I killed my first fascist. At Monte Ascoro, the lines were closer and one fired oftener, but I am reasonably certain that I never hit anyone. As a matter of fact, on this front and at this period of the year, uh, at this period of the war, the real weapon was not the rifle, but the megaphone. Being unable to kill your enemy, you shouted at him instead. This method of warfare is so extraordinary that it needs explaining. When if the lines were within hailing distance of one another, there was always a good deal of shouting from trench to trench, from ourselves, Fascistas! Maricones! From the fascists, Viva España! Viva Franco! Or, when they knew that there were English opposite them, Go home, you English! We don't want foreigners here! On the government side, in the party militias, the shouting of propaganda to undermine the enemy morale had been developed into a regular technique. In every suitable position, men, usually machine gunners, were told, uh, were told off for shooting duty and provided with megaphones. Generally, they shouted a set piece full of revolutionary sentiments with ex- which explained to the fascist soldiers that they were merely the hirelings of international capitalism, that they were fighting against their own class, etc., etc., and urged them to come over to our side. This was repeated over and over by relays of men. Sometimes it continued om- almost the whole night. There is very little doubt that I had its. Th- there is very little doubt that it had its effect. Everyone agreed that the trickle of fascist deserters was partly caused by it. If one comes to think of it, when some poor devil of a century, very likely a socialist or anarchist trade union member who has been conscripted against his will, is freezing at his post, the slogan, Don't fight against your own class, ringing again and again through the darkness, is bound to make an impression on him. It might make just the difference between deserting and not deserting. Of course, such a proceeding does not fit in with the English conception of war. I admit I was amazed and scandalized when I first saw it done, the idea of trying to convert your enemy instead of shooting him. I now think that from any point of view, it was a legitimate maneuver. In ordinary trench warfare, there is no artillery. It is extremely difficult to inflict casualties on the enemy without receiving an equal number yourself. If you can immobilize a certain number of men by making them desert, so much the better. Deserters are actually more useful to you than corpses, because they can give information. But at the beginning, it it just made all of us. It made us fed up that thing. It made us fed that... Made us fed that the Spaniards were not talk were not taking this war of theirs sufficiently seriously. The man who did the shouting at the PSUC post down our down on our right was an artist at the job. Sometimes, instead of shouting revolutionary slogans, he simply told the fascists how much better we were fed than they were. His account of the government rations was apt to be a little imaginative. Buttered toast. You could hear his voice echoing across the lonely valley. We're just sitting down to buttered toast over here. Lovely slices of buttered toast. I don't doubt that, like the rest of us, he had not seen butter for weeks or months past. But in the icy night, the news of buttered toast probably sent many a fascist mouth-watering. 
It even made mine water, though I knew he was lying. One day in February, we saw a fascist airplane approaching. As usual, a machine gun was dragged into the open, and its barrel cocked up, and everyone lay on his back to get a good aim. Our isolated positions were not worth bombing, and as a rule, the few fascist airplanes that passed our way circled round to avoid machine gun fire. This time the airplane came straight over, too high up to be worth shooting at, and out of it came tumbling not bombs, but white glittering things that turned over and over in the air. A few fluttered down into the position. They were copies of a fascist newspaper, the Geraldo de Aragon, announcing the fall of Malaga. That night, the fascists made a sort of abortive attack. I was just getting down into Kip, half dead with sleep, when there was a heavy stream of bullets overhead, and someone shouted into the dugout, They're attacking! I grabbed my rifle and slithered up to my post, which was at the top of the position, beside the machine gun. There was utter darkness and diabolical noise. The fire of, I think, five machine guns was pouring upon us, and there was a series of heavy crashes caused by the fascists flinging bombs over their own parapet in the most idiotic manner. It was intensely dark. Down in the valley to the left of us, I could see a greenish flash of rifles where the small party of fascists, probably a patrol, were chipping in. The bullets were flying around us in the darkness. Crick, that crack. A few shells came whistling over, but they fell nowhere near us, and, as usual in this war, most of them failed to explode. I had a bad moment when yet another machine gun opened fire from the hilltop in our rear, actually a gun that had been brought up to support us, but at the time it looked as though we were surrounded. Presently, our own machine gun jammed, as it always did jam with these vile cartridges, and the ramrod was lost in the impenetrable darkness. Apparently, there is nothing that one could do except stand still and be shot at. The Spanish machine gunners disdained to take cover, in fact, exposed themselves deliberately, so I had to do likewise. Petty, though, it was. The whole experience was very interesting. It was the first time that I had been properly speaking under fire, and to my humiliation I found that I was horribly frightened. You always, I notice, feel the same when you are under heavy fire. Not so much afraid of being hit as afraid because you don't know where you will be hit. You're wondering all the while just where the bullet will nip you, and it gives your whole body a most unpleasant sensitiveness. About an hour or two, after about an hour or two, the firing slowed down and died away. Meanwhile, we had, on, had only one casualty. The fascists had advanced a couple of machine guns into no man's land, but they had kept a safe distance and made no attempt to storm our parapet. They were, in fact, not attacking, merely wasting cartridges and making a cheerful noise to celebrate the fall of Malaga. The chief importance of the affair was that it taught me to read the war news in the papers with a more disbelieving eye. A day or two later, the newspapers and the radio published reports of a tremendous attack with cavalry and tanks up a perpendicular hillside, which had been beaten off by the heroic English. When the fascists told us that Malaga had fallen, we set it down as a lie, but next day there were more convincing rumors, and it must have been a day or two later that it was admitted officially. By degrees, the whole disgraceful story leaked out. 
how the town had been evacuated without firing a shot, and how the fury of the Italians had fallen not upon the troops who were gone, but upon the wretched civilian population, some of whom were pursued and machine-gunned for a hundred miles. The news sent a sort of chill all along the line, for whatever the truth may have been, every man in the militia believed that the loss of Malaga was due to treachery. It was the first talk I had heard of treachery, or divided aims. It set up in my mind the first vague thought, doubts about this war in which, hitherto, the rights and wrongs had seemed so beautifully simple. In mid-January, in mid-February, we left Monte Oscuro and were sent, together with all the POUM troops in this sector, to make a part of the army besieging Huesca. It was a fifty-mile lorry journey across the wintry plain, where the clipped vines were not yet budding and the blades of the winter barley were just poking through the lumpy soil. Four kilometers from our new trenches, Huesca glittered small and clear like a city of dolls' homes, houses. Months earlier, when Sietamo was taken, the general commanding the government troops had said gaily, "'Tomorrow we'll have coffee in Huesca!' It turned out that he was mistaken. There had been bloody attacks, but the town did not fall, and tomorrow we'll have coffee in Huesca had become a standing joke throughout the army. If I ever go back to Spain, I shall make a point of having a cup of coffee in Huesca.